Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Sarah Utoff, and welcome to this episode of Travel Times. For those of you who have been just listening to my regular podcast, Travel Times are special half-hour episodes I do uh, where I normally interview an insider with how to do something different on travel. We've done everything from Civil War reenacting to taking a trip on Amtrak to going to the state fair. And uh, we've got some interesting ones planned for this year, too. Next month, we're going to be talking to a storm chaser, and I think that you'll enjoy it. Today's episode is going to be just a little bit different. First off, um, I'm not going to actually have a guest this time because the topic I came up with, I couldn't think of anybody else uh, who would be a better example of than me, so I'm going to just be talking myself today, but I think uh, there will still be a lot of interesting things to cover. And also, this turns out to be sort of a bit of a snow day today for me because uh, the library that I normally work at on Fridays is shut uh, due to the weather. So I thought since I was having a snow day, why not go ahead and go ahead and do the, an episode? And maybe some of you are having a snow day too or are listening as you're finishing up on your Friday afternoon. I didn't give anybody much uh, warning, but I hope that you'll enjoy it anyway. Now, first off, we're going to do just a little bit of housekeeping. To remind everybody that if you want to call in, you can do that at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free 1-877-633-9389. That's 1-877-633-9389. And uh, you can call in to talk to the host, or if you just want to listen to the show while you're out and about, you're perfectly welcome to do that, too. So I don't have uh, any future dates set for Travel Times episode or the regular ones because I'm actually having a little bit more trouble with the uh, music that I'm going to be using in in the other interview we do this uh, month. So pay attention to the website and we'll get that updated as soon as we can. And that should do it for housekeeping. And that gets us to today's topic, which today on Travel Times, we're going to be talking about historic meals. Now, uh, there are uh, lots of different opportunities to go to a historic meal, and there are different kinds of things. And one of the things that I, I did in preparation of today's episode is I tried to find out what museums across the country were hosting um, historic meals where the public could come in and eat. And I found out that there was a lot more than I anticipated. And there was a lot more uh, types of um, 
events going on than I anticipated. So I think I'm eventually going to be working on putting together a list of those. But in the meantime, we're just going to uh, talk about some of the ones I've been to uh, in particular. So, But I think that they'll give you sort of a general idea. Now, there are basically three different ways that you can go and have a historic meal. Uh, one way is through sort of single, one-time, one-shot, one-off type of events. Uh, there are also places, mostly museums, that have an ongoing program. A lot of times they'll call them something like historic dinners or hearthside meals or things like that. So there's uh, that type of thing. And then also, sometimes at museums, sometimes not, there are restaurants that actually deliberately try and talk about what you would have for a historic meal and replicate uh, that experience. So I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about each one of these three kinds because they're certainly doable and things that anybody can do and, and they have different experiences. Now the first thing you should know that none of these programs are going to be cheap. Uh, they normally are quite intensive in staff time, sometimes they're st intensive in equipment and in foodstuffs, so it isn't going to be um, the same cost is just going to a normal meal out for the most part. So it's good to keep that in mind. Also, especially with the single events, a lot of times they're done as a fundraiser for some groups. So again, then the, on top of the costs, there's the amount of money added for fundraising. So that leads uh, to talking, I guess, about the single events. And I would have to say uh, that uh, there's been three real large single historic events that I've been to. And probably the most elaborate of these was one for the Titanic where I actually got to speak. It was a fundraiser for the Titanic or for the Five City Public Library with a Titanic theme. And it actually was very well done. At the time, the Titanic cookbook had just come out, which was a book that talked about the meals on the Titanic. And the author of the book was going around and for various uh, groups would be doing these dinners. And it was mostly just sort of the first-class dinner that people would do. Well, uh, we actually decided to well, the library decided to do a meal, and instead of just having the first class, they did it in the Memorial Union down at the University of Iowa, there was uh, three levels. So there was the first class who were in a separate sealed off room and got what the first class people would have gotten. There was the second class, which were beyond some potted palms and got what the second class people would have gotten. And then most people got the... A steerage class meal, and we had uh, I had kakaliki soup for the first time, and uh, to tell you the truth, I think that steerage, which as on the Titanic was the biggest section by far, I think we had a lot more fun than the other people because the steerage people we dressed up, we were loud, we were talking about the Titanic, we were having our picture taken. I, I, most people made at least some attempt to come in a historic costume, 
it was a fun night. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I went. Some of my family members went. Some of my friends went. I mean, it was just a cool thing. And if you get a chance to do something like that, even if you go a little bit at the price, it's worth it because it really is a lot of good memories for us. And as I say, uh, don't be afraid if you can only afford the steerage. Go steerage because the steerage is a lot more fun than the first class anyway because I got a chance to walk over and see what they were doing in in, uh, second class and first class. And I'll tell you, I never saw uh, such a bored-looking group in first class in my life. Not a single costume, not a single uh, smile when I looked in through the window. But everybody in in steerage had an awesome time. And if you ever get a chance to do something like that, by all means, do it. The second single event that I've been to was one that I helped organize a little bit. And uh, I think probably most of my listeners will know that I worked at Usher's Ferry Historic Village for, oh goodness, I think it was about six years. And one of the things that we did that was a very successful program that I sort of started and then co-chaired was to do a Laura Ingalls Wilder Patch Day to help girls get their patch in Girl Scouts. It was very successful. And they've recently started up doing a smaller version of that again. But it was so successful, and we had so many of the leaders say that they wish they had something for an adult that we actually put together what we called an adult Laura Day. And um, we had, it wasn't any special speakers coming in from outside. We had put together special programming. Um, I did uh, two kind of large presentations about Laura's life in Mansfield and the different roles she played there. Uh, I did a short thing on Laura's music, and uh, Vicki Hughes did a, one of the best, well, I go so far as to say the best first-person rose that I have seen so far, Laura Ingleswater's daughter Rose, uh, talking about her and her later life. And then Sue Dugan uh, did the travel element of how to take a Laura Ingleswalder vacation. And then in between the, the sessions, we had a hands-on session where people could try crafts and explore the village. And then we also had lunch in the church. And it really was like, I think, a lot what the events that Ma described as being being in the church. We went and scrounged up chairs from all over the village, so we had all these old mismatched wooden chairs that we drug in there, and we had sheets for tablecloths because we didn't have enough, and we had chicken and biscuits, which is one of the things Laura talks about having, and... um flowers on the tables and I turned most of that over to my mother and grandmother who just did a super Trojan job coming up with this and everybody enjoyed it and talked about the meal as being one of the highlights of the event so uh, and I think it really felt I mean we were there in a 19th century church we didn't have any air conditioning we just had the doors open like they would have then we were just using you know things that we picked up around the village that were all the time period I think people really enjoyed that day, and the meal was a big part of it. However, 
Um, a historic meal maybe not be for everybody. The third uh, historic meal that I've been to was actually part of a class, and it was for an organization called uh, the Geographic Alliance of Iowa that uh, does very nice uh, learn-as-you-travel trips. And uh, they don't seem to be doing quite as many of these anymore, but for a while they were doing these two Saturday classes that you'd go to a center or location in the state for one Saturday and then a month later for another Saturday and uh, there'd be lectures and speakers and things like that. It was a nice thing, but they decided to have um, as close as they could get to what Lewis and Clark had and, and exactly how uh, the one who went to was on Lewis and Clark, and they decided to have a meal on Lewis and Clark as they would have had it on uh, the Friday night, which was very nice of them. And it was, um, I don't know exactly how accurate it was. They had corn, and they had rice, and they had fish, because they talked about, uh, especially towards the second half, having uh, a fish a lot. That was one of the things they didn't like when they were actually traveling out west because they had to eat so much fish. But they had uh, catfish fried with the head on. And some of the people who were supposed to be teachers learning to open up their mind freaked out. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. So I guess it's good to warn people these things are coming, but they just, uh, just threw a a huge fuss and eventually got a vegetarian portion and apparently they weren't really expecting to have to do that so what they got was instead of the fish was an extra helping of both the rice and the corn uh, and that one didn't go over real well so I think people's attitudes going into these meals uh, is an important part of the um, experience now, the next type of program I want to talk about are sort of ongoing programs where people have these kind of meals. And I've been to uh, several uh, living history museums that have an ongoing meals program. They're separate from the local uh, attendance. Normally, they're done uh, in sort of the off-season, either in the late fall or over the winter when there aren't many people coming to of the museum. Uh, sometimes people actually help cook part of the meal themselves and get, you know, sort of a little historic cooking lesson as they go. Sometimes it's all cooked and prepared ahead of time. Uh, so there's kind of different experiences. Now, I've actually been to one of these historic meals twice, uh, and that was at Living History Farms. And it was kind of fun because uh, the one we went to in the 1900 uh, farmhouse, you went through the back entrance, which I didn't even know was there. So you had this secret little map in there where you're supposed to go, which was fun. And that took us to uh, what they were then calling the conference center when Living History Farms opened. When I was a kid, it was the Farm of the Future, which is this little earth house they had. But you went to the, the conference center, and then they loaded you up on a bobsled and took you over to the 1900 farm, so you got a little bit of a ride and kind of the experience of going back in time to the farm. Now, these meals tend to be served in a historic building, 
So there is a limit on the number of people that they can have. There's also usually a limit on what is served. You might get a choice of meat if you're the first one in the group to book uh, for that time slot. Um, and you can either go as part of a group of strangers. For example, at Living History Farms 1900, they had a seating of 10 people at each meal. And uh, the first time we went, we went with just our family, and there were five of us. And then there were, um, I think, five other people that were, you know, in little subgroups that had come themselves. And so we were there with strangers. The second time, uh, we organized another family to go with us, so we just knew everybody there. And actually, that was, I think, a little bit more enjoyable. But there's certainly nothing wrong going with strangers. And you, uh, everybody, again, is usually there to, to have a good time, kind of knows what to expect. And so people tend to be fairly friendly. Now, in uh, a lot of times, these rest, this food, I want you, you don't want you to get the wrong idea because while some of it is actually, uh, depending on the location and the local food laws, some of it is cooked right there in the hearth or on the wood stove. A lot of times, the actual food preparation is done in a separate kitchen. Uh, at Living History Farms, they have a basement facility that is up to restaurant code. Uh, I didn't actually get to go to a meal at New Salem, but I w was there for a cooking workshop, and it was kind of interesting. Their kitchen was back behind a curtain in, in uh, one of their buildings, and they had a refrigerator and painted it a black matte finish so that you really couldn't see it, and it was behind a curtain, and it was kind of cool. Uh, they have a uh, prep area at the f in, up in the sort of attic of the Firestone House when we were... Uh, there for uh Alfam conference at the at uh, Detroit, and so they have uh these different places everywhere, but normally there's there's some just some separate place where they're doing the cooking, so this is all done to to restaurant level food safety, so you don't have to worry about any of that. But they normally at least keep it warm on the wood stove, and it certainly has a lot of ambience. And normally, there'll be some kind of activity set up. So, for instance, with the Living History Farm at the 1900 place, you could uh, tour the farmyard. They had checkers. They had uh, reproductions of the Sears Montgomery Ward catalogs from uh, the approximate time period. They had a pump organ, and you could play it. Uh, they had stereo optigans. So they just had a variety of things. Uh, one of the meals we went to, the first one was at night. The second one was during the day. And the nice thing about doing during the day is it was a little easier to see outside. And also, uh, as I say, these tend to be in the more kind of questionable weather area times of the year. And so uh, even though that was in Des Moines and we live outside Seoul and we could drive there, have the meal, and drive home, and it was still um, just about light out when we got home. So that was a nice thing, but it really kind of gave you more of the ambience to be out there at night. I liked that. One thing, though, I thought was kind of interesting was the first thing we noticed walking into the farmhouse for the night one 
was they were trying to sort of replicate the level of light that we're used to with electricity. So really in 1900, they would have probably had one lamp in the middle of the table. And there were like five in the front parlor. And when you walked into the room, whammo, it was like you walked into a, a wall of kerosene fumes because they had so many lamps going. You could just smell it. And uh, we always thought that was really funny. But it was really bright. If you have five lamps going, it, it was as bright as electricity in that room. So that was kind of an interesting thing, too. And uh, one of the strong memories that we always talk about it. Now, uh, with these kind of programs, the people who are doing the working for the museum are always in costume. Sometimes they encourage visitors to be in costume. Sometimes not. You may want to ask about that before you show up in one, um, because sometimes, especially if it would be a time when the park is actually open or the museum is actually open, they don't really like having. Um, uh, sort of other people there in costume because they think it confuses the other visitors. So it's it's good to ask no matter where you are. Now there's also they did so well with those 1900 farm dinners at Living History Farms that uh, they went to having an uh, an 1870s meal in the town and they also have teas at the Flynn Mansion and there's probably a lot more tea opportunities out there than there is even the meals so um, no matter where you live if you're near Living History Farms, New Salem, Greenfield Village, Connors Prairie, um, pretty much any Living History Museum of any size they're going to have a program along these lines going and you can certainly check with them whatever one's closest to you to see if they do have a meal program and I am going to be working on putting together a list of them just because I was surprised how much interest that I got just from asking the question so uh, I'd encourage you to get a chance to do that now the other type of thing that you can have besides one of these sort of specialized programs, is sometimes there are actual historic restaurants, uh, usually but not always in conjunction with a historic site. So, for instance, uh, if you went to Colonial Williamsburg, besides the 1950 soda fountain, which I think is very nifty and a different kind of time travel experience, they have within the actual museum... Uh, a couple different things, places that are taverns. And these taverns serve actual food as as a restaurant. And this was actually one of my mom's biggest regrets after she visited uh, Colonial Williamsburg for the first time was that they didn't get to eat in one of those uh, historic restaurants when uh, when she was there. So when we went back, we made sure that we stopped there and we went to eat uh, at Chris, at one called Christina Campbell's. And uh, there, the reason we picked that one was having read through the descriptions carefully and consulted multiple guidebooks before we went to Colonial Williamsburg. We found out that George Washington always ate at Christina Campbell's. And by that, I mean the historic person stayed at the historic Christina Campbell Tavern that the modern one is loosely based on. 
And it was really a very fun experience. It had different kinds of um, old-fashioned food there. And it, it was just really such a lot of ambience, despite the fact that all the people who were eating were just you know, plain clothes tourists. But it was still a lot of fun. And I definitely encourage anybody uh, who wants to to go there. Now, um, the one thing about Christina Campbell's, and I believe the other taverns at Colonial Williamsburg, is that uh, you ha- sit at individualized tables. Um, if you're going there at a busy time, it may be good to ask about a reservation. And then you just, uh, they'll seat you and you have your little table to yourself, whoever's in your party. That isn't always the case. One of, Another one that I really liked was at Greenfield Village, which is part of the Henry Ford Museum up uh, near Dearborn, Michigan. And there they have the Eagle Tavern. Now the Eagle Tavern is an actual old tavern that was moved in and is now one of these uh, historic restaurants. It isn't the only place to get food at the Henry at Greenfield Village. In fact, right down, about two houses down, is their modern cafeteria. Uh, but it isn't nearly as fun. And there's also a dining uh, car there, or wagon, at which actually nobody less, nobody less than Almanza Wilder said that that was a better deal and a better meal than you could get in Mansfield was to eat off of uh, the lunch wagon, which I really wish I would have known before we were there. But next time I'm there, I'm going to eat there. This time, though, we ate at the Eagle Tavern. And one of the things about the Eagle Tavern that we really liked was that you sat in traditional tavern style, meaning that you didn't just go and sit with your party. They they would bring in people uh, and fill up one of their tables, which were like a normal dining room table size or maybe a little bigger. So you could probably get 10, 12 people around one of these tables. And uh, it was a different experience because you were all kind of thrown out of your element there. That was that was what we kind of liked about it was because it kind of got you out of your normal expectations and kind of opened you up a little to the experience. Now, um, I really enjoyed the food there a lot. Uh, my brother didn't quite as much, but he tends to be a little picky. So that is something to be considered because these historic meals are mostly serving, though a lot of times... They try and pick historic things that modern people would like to. Modern and historic cooking is not the same thing. Bear that in mind. Go with an open mind and the idea of at least trying everything. And uh, they make compromises. And one that I thought was really funny was there was an expectation at the Eagle Tavern that there, uh, through most of their guests, that if they had... Um, something to drink that there would be a straw well they didn't have plastic straws in the early part of the 19th century and they didn't even have paper straws so what they came up with was that you got a macaroni noodle that was a hollow cylinder that was uh, oh probably six eight inches long and they used those for straws and i thought that was a very clever compromise and i enjoyed that part uh, there's also sometimes a standalone museum or um, restaurant that will try and do an historic experience. Uh, one of the ladies that I know through Alfam and Mumsey recently started a bread and breakfast called the Hillside Homestead, 
and uh, her, one of her purposes, because she's always been interested in historic food ways, uh, was to uh, serve things in a historic fashion. So she does uh, meals, and also the meals that go with the bed and breakfast are uh, cooked in uh, an old-fashioned uh, methods with the wood stove and everything and served at the table and she had bought a farmhouse and just totally renovated it to look pretty much exactly like it did in 1900 or a little bit before it might have been uh, late 19th century but it really uh, I've seen the pictures on Facebook and they did a very nice job with it and I'm sure that there are other uh, restaurants along that line and um, bed and breakfasts that have that kind of flavor going on too so no matter where you live around the country I really think that you'll be able to find a historic meal somewhere close to you and uh, if not then Definitely bear it in mind as a possibility when you're on the trip. We certainly have enjoyed a lot of our uh, times at living history sites more for having gotten to have a historic meal, and I think that you will too. Now, we're about out of time, but I do uh, want to thank you for listening in today. I want to remind you uh, to watch the schedule both on my blog and my website and on Twitter and on Facebook when I warn people when I'm going to have these episodes. I hope this has been a fun snow day for everybody and uh, that you will try a historic meal. And uh, the next episode of Trendlebed Tales that we're going to have hopefully uh, is, depending if I get this uh, music uploaded properly online, uh, we'll be talking about some of the musical traditions centered around Laura Angus Wilder. And then we're going to uh, be talking to uh, the lady who played the music for me about the differences between a piano and a pump organ and what it's like to come from a musical family. And I think that that will be very enlightening for people. So thank you for uh, listening to Trendlebed Tales, Travel Times, and I hope that I will see you again soon. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.